What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's April 2019, and you're listening to Episode 117 of Postmodern Realities, which is a film review for the movie Unplanned. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jay Watts. Jay is the founder and president of Merrily Human Ministries, Inc., which is an organization committed to equipping Christians and people who hold pro-life views to graciously defend the intrinsic dignity of all human life in a positive and gospel-focused manner. Jay has written an online exclusive film review of the film Unplanned, and it's available free online at our website, equip.org. Jay, it's good to have you on. It's great to be back, Melody. Well, we're here to talk about the new release of this film by Pure Flix, and it's a film about a woman named Abby Johnson. It's kind of a fictionalized treatment of her memoir. It's called Unplanned, and Abby was a Planned Parenthood clinic director in Bryan, Texas, and she ends up leaving that abortion provider after being involved with facilitating more than 22,000 abortions. And what's interesting about this film, which is in theaters right now, is it was outperforming its expectations. I don't think the industry expected it to do well. And it found itself in the top five films of last week by taking in $6.3 million. So we want to talk about it. And I would like to say, just to start out, you know, it's uh, being released at a particularly, I would say, the culture specifically in the United States right now is rather charged in terms of social issues. And it's this kind of environment. It's, is it a good time for a movie like this to be out there on this issue on abortion? Yeah, I think right now, given um, what happened starting at the beginning of the year on Roe v. Wade Day, Day, which was January 22nd, when Governor Cuomo in New York signed in new laws into New York, immediately followed by other states like Virginia, Vermont, Illinois, all proposing laws that that prepare their states for a, what I would consider a post-Roe environment. Right now, the Supreme Court is more conservative than it's ever been since the 60s and really probably since the first time since 1992 when Planned Parenthood versus Casey was going to be decided. There's a real feeling from those people, from abortion rights defenders, that we could be seeing a threat to Roe, a real threat to Roe. And so states are aligning themselves with Roe-like laws on a state level. And what's happened is it's really educated the public as to what Roe-like laws are. There's always been a misunderstanding in the public about restrictions to abortion. And as they see states putting into law or trying to put into law explicitly stated laws that protect abortion through all nine months, you're seeing an outrage growing from people who have probably been been active but sympathetically pro-life. At the same time, you're seeing renewed efforts from the other side to protect abortion laws as they exist. And so the, the culture has become, even on an issue that's always animated, that's always uh, invoking passion, has become even more passionate, even more divided. And in the midst of this, things like Unplanned are coming in at just a, sort of a, like almost a providentially right time for the makers of Unplanned because they're never going to have an audience that's more anticipating this kind of thing and more eager. I think you saw something very similar, too, when abortionist Dr. Willie Parker and college professor uh, Dr. Mike Adams debated at UNC Wilmington. And it was a debate that had been set up a year before 
but it just hit at the right time and grew a lot of national attention. It became very important to people on both sides. So it, it hits at the right moment in order to, to gather that influence that it wants to gather, hopefully, or, or at least to gather that interest from, from pro-life people who are, who are buying out theaters and going to see it. And this is really interesting that, you know, it's coming at this time because we sometimes think of specifically the issue of abortion as kind of stale, ethical issue. It's not really relevant anymore. But because of some of the new, I guess, like you were saying, the Supreme Court justices, it's really been front page news, I've noticed, over the past year. And specifically when you're talking about some of the laws in Virginia and New York, you know, one of the op-eds just a couple months ago in the New York Times was like fake news about abortion in Virginia. No, they're not trying to legalize infanticide. So there's just this back and forth. And I think specifically when we talk about this film, there's already, as I've read some film reviews out there, this idea that this is just a bunch of, you know, anti-abortion lies really and made up, you know, she's embellished her story and so forth. So what makes this movie, would you say, any different from other pro-life Christian movies or Christian movies that promote, you know, they're promoted to Christian audiences um, that this idea will even, you know, will it even impact society at all? I think that when you come to specifically pure flicks, they tend to do a lot of their marketing through the Christian church. So is there any difference with this film versus any of their other films that they market that way where they'll sell out theaters. So people would say, well, it has those numbers because they sold out theaters through Christian churches. Yeah. I, I do think that one, one thing that you would hear, and I'm somebody who I would say is both um, cynical about Christian movies, but also uh, I don't particularly care for the online cynicism that accompanies every Christian movie that comes out. So I, I feel like I'm in the middle here. Uh, one of the things, though, that I would say when I talk to a lot of audience members, and that's what I've tried to do, I've tried to talk to people who are not dyed-in-the-wool pro-life people who have been to this movie, and I've been to two showings and talked to people beyond that to see what their reaction was. It's hard for me to gauge because I'm involved in this all the time. And one thing I thought that was interesting was the people who dislike these kind of Christian movies, their usual problem with it, other than the production value is lower, and that's going to happen. This movie cost, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 million to make. It just can't compete with the production value of a movie that costs $150 million to make. Yes, I, I will say that the production values are not high, and it does come across more like a TV film. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you know the acting level is, is just the acting level, direction, all of it, timing. A lot of the stuff is a little different. But what, the thing I think that bothers people isn't the production value always. It's the implausibility that a lot of even Christians say of some of the stories that come out. They just don't feel human. They don't feel real. And this particular one, as you said, is based on a true story. And so there's a sense of plausibility to the story, even though there are elements of it that are obviously deeply fictionalized. But if there are elements of it that uh, it feels more real because it is based on a real story and you're following a real person's life. Uh, and, and also I think the, the goal of the movie, you know, it starts off, somebody said something to me that I felt like barely mirrored what I felt like in the first few minutes of the movie, I really felt that sense of, Oh, here we go. You know, there's, there's something about the production value. Everything's a little off. And then it goes immediately into an abortion procedure almost. I mean, within the first few minutes of the movie, and it sets the tone that this movie is as much about what happens inside Planned Parenthood as it is Abby Johnson's personal life, even more so. And so it, it starts to unfold as, as sort of a film expose of different elements of the abortion industry or the world inside of an abortion clinic that the rest of the world just doesn't know about. And so it draws you into those elements of it. And I think those two things combined, the idea that it, it's more plausible and you don't get that sense that these aren't real people because it is based on real people. And the fact that it's, it's main focus isn't just uh, a, a tale of a person or individual, but it's unfold information. It, there's, there's just real teaching going on in certain elements of it. As a matter of fact, Owen Gleiberman and for Variety, I think, complained that he felt like there was elements of it that were so didactic. It was like a lesson being taught to pro-lifers. Uh, and I do think there's something to that in the sense that it unfolds like a lesson. Here's things that you didn't know that are going on in the world around you. And so there is more room for impact. I've talked to people who have been impacted by it. 
because they found out things that they didn't know. Uh, in addition to seeing a story that they felt like, hey, it was a pretty good story. Abby's story, even you know, dressed up for a movie, is an interesting story. There's a reason why people on both sides of the issue are writing about her and arguing about her, uh, whether they believe her or not. It's interesting. So did this political environment in any way impact, do you think, the ability of the producers to market this film right now? There's been a lot of, I think this film is trending. I mean, you don't have to even spell out the whole film and it comes right to the top of the yeah. search engine. It, it does have the power of, they were able to go out and they did a very good job. I first saw this movie a couple of months ago and when I was, I was invited to a special screening and I got to see it with some of the actors, including Ashley Bratcher. Uh, I got to see it with the director and a group of people here in Atlanta. And so they they explained then their marketing approach, but they were not prepared for how much they were going to need that sort of grassroots guerrilla like approach to marketing because they couldn't buy airtime. You know, they, they went to, to, to networks looking to buy airtime for commercials and they were denied. Most of the networks that would respond as to why they denied it when they were asked. And that was every network other than Fox news and CBN. Those are the only two networks that would sell them airtime. Uh, HGTV would not Hallmark would not, none of the networks would. And so uh, when they were asked, they felt like this commercial selling commercial time to this would be a political statement. So they refused to allow them to promote it, which, which by the way, I find absurd. I mean, if, if there was, whether you like the movie or not, if there was any more political movie than vice, I don't know what could have been. And nobody had any problem selling political airtime to that one. It has, it clearly has to do with this particular issue. And then beyond that, when they were trying to buy rights to use music and they had a list of songs that they wanted to originally include in the movie, they went to the people who hold those rights, the corporations that hold the catalogs of those rights, and they couldn't buy music. They would not sell them the rights to that music. And there's other things, there's, you know, there's always, the, the world is constantly accusing Twitter of doing weird things to their accounts. And so there's some argument there. Uh, Twitter seems to claim it's just their normal issues that they sometimes have with things. But um, there, there does seem to be a, a concerted effort in this to not and not in any way participate in marketing this. And so their marketing strategy really was a, a guerrilla marketing strategy on the grounds getting people to invite people, going to organizations and saying, buy out a theater, invite your friends. And I've seen it twice already. And both times I've seen it for free because I was brought into by organizations that bought it out. First time, the movie producers and second, a local pregnancy center. Both times the theaters were packed. Uh, and, and that's been similar. And then yesterday I actually talked to a, a church who uh, one of the pastors took an entire staff, group of staff members to see it in the afternoon, in the middle of the week. Uh, so there were challenges and challenges that seem unique to a movie that deals with this particular issue. Maybe it's just pure flicks has rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, but uh, they have overcome those at this point because, as you said, they outperformed. I think they were supposed to get $4 million and they came in somewhere over $6 million and are still doing well today. Yes, I did see this film on a weekday at 2 o'clock and I was so surprised it was sold out except for the first two rows and I, it was just individual people walking in. It didn't look like any group. So that was surprising to me. Um, you mentioned her story as being important to maybe the interest because it's a, based on something that's real life. But in light of that, you know, if you look online, there are questions from critics that are saying that she's outright lying. Some of her things that she's uh, said happened to her specifically when the film opens, and I guess it's the crucial point of her book on which this film is based, is that she witnesses a, an abortion performed with an ultrasound, and people who have tried to discredit Abby was saying there's no such procedure that was done on that day or anywhere near that Bryan, Texas clinic, and that's not a procedure that's normally done. Yeah, I think the movie, it's interesting, and in the, there are criticisms of her, and the movie addresses those criticisms in, in a way that unless you're familiar with the criticisms, you wouldn't recognize it. But in every way, if you know what all those criticisms are, you see them sort of covering that in the movie. Uh, it, it, there has been a, a couple of different articles written by people in Texas. Uh, one written by a guy for Texas Monthly, Nate Blakesley, uh, where he was, I think, initially the one that started to, to question these things saying that on September 26th, the day that Abby said that she saw this, Abby's description of the procedure was being done 
on a young black woman. And they said that there was no African-American woman that got a 13 week abortion. And there were no ultrasound abortions that day. If you see in the movie, when Abby walks into the room, the doctor played by Dr. Levitano, uh, an actual uh, former abortionist, now a pro-life advocate, he says, I pers- he, as a new doctor, because they talk about him being a new doctor in the clinic, it, Abby mentions that, I only do ultrasound-guided ultra, uh, ultrasound abortions. So it's as if they're setting up for a particular thing there. Uh, there are questions about Abby's story, questions about the timeline. There were timeline differences between the movie and the real story. She didn't immediately leave. There was a, a lapse between the time that she saw it and the time that she showed up. 40 days for life it was two weeks before she left and, and i think if i read correctly in the book where she said her husband suggested that you know she needed to find a job before she left because they needed both incomes uh so there are some differences between the two when you read the the she does interviews and she when she did interviews even back then and people confronted her with these disparities uh she would just outright say that she was telling the truth and the other side was trying to, to lie. It saw one particular author who admitted, or one of the writers who was covering this admitted at the end of the day, it's sort of a, he said, they, she said, they said thing going on here. Uh, you know, there's, there's just a level to which you have to either believe Abby or believe the people who are criticizing about her. And some of the disparities between what she says, the most glaring disparities that they were able to find uh, aren't critical in the sense that they don't completely and totally undermine her story. Uh, They just cause questions as far as days and timings. And maybe there were things that she's saying that, uh, that she forgot uh, details that she's. uh, So it it really does come back to a, nobody can prove what happened there. I mean, nobody really knows and you have to either trust what Abby's saying was true or you don't. And she has never shied away from taking people on, on this. Uh, she has never hidden from it. She's done interviews. She's let them confront her and she's she's answered those questions. And and seeing somebody from the other side that's critical of her admit, look, these disparities aren't really a huge deal. The question at the end of the day becomes, you know, were, were all of these details, is there anything we can ever prove one way or another? And it doesn't seem to be. You just have to decide how much of it you want to believe and who you want to believe in all of this. Here's the thing that as far as the central claims to that movie, as far as the nature of abortion and the things that are most moving people. When I talk to audience members, whether or not Abby's story is true or not is actually completely irrelevant to those. Uh, there are, there are claims as far as teaching what's going on on the issue of abortion that goes on in that movie. It's done within the narrative of Abby's life, but Abby's tr- story being completely true is in no way relevant to whether or not those things are completely true or those things are actually happening. And it's those things that people are seeing when I talk to people that are most moving people that are either in the middle or were not moved by abortion prior to this and are now claiming to be active on it. So we've talked a little bit about some of her critics from the pro-choice side. Does she have any critics from the pro-life side about her story and you know the veracity of it? She does. There's a, you know, Abby is a woman who draws a lot of controversy in the sense of she, her story's interesting. Um, she is a, a, in the sense, like I said, she's tough. She'll, she'll stand in front of people and take them on and, and, and she's not particularly shy about it. And to that end, she has, as interesting as her story is the claim that she was changed over uh, on seeing this graphic thing happen, this horrible thing happen, this human life taken but she has rubbed other people on the pro-life side sometimes the wrong way and, and getting into arguments about the effectiveness of graphic images and has been very uh, strong in her, her criticism of other members. Her characterization of, of sidewalk counselors has drawn some criticism uh, and from certain aspects of people. The idea that uh, there were people at the fence yelling and screaming those things. There have been sidewalk counselors that have said, can you prove that that actually happened? Because we were people that were there and we never did that. Uh, and they feel like they have been mischaracterized as as hateful and awful and ugly as part of her story. Uh, as something that to to highlight the difference between Abby and Sean Carney and, and these other people, that there was this group that was not 40 Days for Life that was ugly and hateful and attacking. And there are sidewalk counselors that say, look, we never were that. We never did that. And so there is criticism from the other side that feels like Abby has characterized other people in the pro-life movement uh, as not as in some way or another in line with the way things ought to be done. And that 
uh, they see themselves in the same way that you have criticism from Planned Parenthood that says we are the enemy, we are the evil people in this, which is easier to understand in the story. There are people in the pro-life movement that say that we have been unfairly characterized as in some way or another kind of bad guys in the story as well. So I just want to give a brief trigger warning because we're going to talk about some of the ways in which abortion is in this film particularly graphically represented. So I just wanted to give that um, if some people need to pause this part of the podcast, if it's going to make them feel uncomfortable or they have um, maybe children listening or something like that. But there are two kinds of abortion procedures that are shown in this film. One is an actual, like a medical procedure abortion with a, a doctor. And another is the RU486 you know, where you're taking a pill and then going home and having the abortion completed, you know, in the privacy, quote unquote, of your own home. And then there's also something in the film that is disconcerting and people want to know, is that even true? Does that even exist? It's called the POC room, which stands for products of conception. And then they do go in there and they show that's where they take these aborted fetuses out and make sure that there's no limbs or things, body parts missing that might still be in the mother's you know, uterus so that she would could have some kind of medical problem. So they need to check for all those kinds of things. So I want to ask you about that specifically because, you know, there's other like pro-choice documentaries out there and they show abortions and they don't show it in such a graphic manner. Maybe that's a criticism of why is this film? That's what I want to know. I'm like, I didn't even realize this film was R and it's because of that. And um, there's a, if some of our listeners haven't heard the um, podcast that I did about the Netflix documentary called Reversing Row, we have that on our website, equip.org. And in that film, they do show abortions. I don't see any like suction or tubing. It just looks like a medical procedure that's happening in the doctor's office. So why this big disparity? Well, I guess I haven't seen Reversing Row. I'd have to watch that to see how they show it. My, there is only a handful. I mean, they don't show any, like, it's showing, like, these big tubes coming down and all this. It just yeah, yeah. looks like a regular exam and the, the uh, you know, abortion provider, the doctor, she says, okay, I'm going to remove the pregnancy now. And you don't really yeah. see anything graphic. You just see the lady, you know, there she is having an abortion. It would have to be, it, what they show at the beginning would be called a, a vacuum curatage abortion and and that's what you would do 12 weeks and earlier they have in the movie talk about 13 weeks that would be right on the edge uh when the when the child is less developed and smaller but there's like i said there's only so many ways you can perform an abortion and none of them are pretty i mean it is it is just an ugly procedure for vacuum curatage and as i say you have as you said you have warned people um what they have to do is they they take that the same vacuum thing that they would use in or, or later procedures to to clear out the amniotic fluid prior to the abortion, uh, prior to, to going in there and getting the child out, they take that and it has a sharp hard into it and they reach in there and they press against, they find the body and press it against it and they pull it to pieces. I mean, it, it, it comes out in pieces through that vacuum tube into a, a container to hold it until they can take it to the, and, and verify that they got all of it out. This is just the way that they have to do that. That's how abortion is. That is a standard procedure that's oh, yeah. done because yeah. in this documentary, they're not showing that. I mean, in reversing row, they did not show any kind of suction, or maybe they're not. Yeah. That's the that's the most common way done. I mean, you're talking about nine, over ninety percent of all abortions are done at twelve weeks and prior, prior to twelve weeks. And the way that you perform an abortion at that is the vacuum curatage method. I mean, it's the the easiest, the least invasive for the woman. Uh, and it's the way all of the, the overwhelming majority of them are done. It takes very little time. It's a, and, and it happens exactly the way you saw it. Now, obviously, you know, dramatic music, and it's not always on uh, an ultrasound. That, that's not always going to happen. But the particular reason that he would, I, I would assume, if you were actually talking about a 13-week, the reason you would want the ultrasound is to make sure that you got all the parts out of the, the woman. But that is the only way. Outside of RU-486, when we're talking about early abortions, that's the way everybody does it. Everybody does vacuum curatage until it gets so big that they have to do a multiple-day procedure uh, where they're going to have to dilate the woman in over 24 or 48 hours, go in and do a different procedure. So 
whatever angle they showed it from under different circumstances. And you see this now in fictionalized things as well. I see TV shows where they're getting braver and more bold about showing abortion as a good or characterizing it as a good thing. And they always show you these from the woman from the, the chest up or from mid-level up as she's laying back peacefully and, and uh, taking the procedure. But it just is what it is. There is only one way that they're doing this at that particular level. And that's that way. They, they took the tube in. The tube has got a hard end to it. It's used to press up against and find the unborn child in there. And then it vacuums them out piece by piece. Uh, and so there is no one that I know that defends that aspect of abortion, that it's not ugly. Even when I talk to abortion rights defenders on college campuses, they acknowledge the ugliness of it. They acknowledge the nastiness of it. They just think that the life that's being destroyed has no value or doesn't matter. None of them will defend that abortion is 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 any way other than the removal of a massive amount of organized tissue, including the woman's own tissue from inside of her uh, uterus. It, it's just, it's nasty. <laughs> and, and any view that shows that, that doesn't show that is selectively showing you what they want you to see and not showing you the part of it uh, that you would see, as you mentioned earlier in the POC room, when they go into there and have to put the baby back together. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Jay Watts, and he has written an online exclusive film review of the movie Unplanned, and it's available free online at our website, equip.org. We'd also like you to subscribe to our journal. A subscription is $33.50, and our content, including these online exclusive articles, are free at equip.org, which means it's subscriptions by print subscribers that provide the resources that minister to everyone that comes worldwide to our website seeking answers regarding these matters, including abortion. And so please subscribe to our journal at equip.org. We were just talking about just the mechanics of abortion earlier, and you were talking about the vacuum abortion but I also asked you about the RU486 because that's part of Abby's story mm -hmm. as well, where it shows that early on, I mean, this is spoilers. More, normally our film reviews do have spoilers. She herself receives um, an abortion. That's an RU486. And they just say, well, take this pill, go home. It's going to be like a light period. And then that's all there is to it. However, I don't know if there's statistics as far as complications or if hers was normal or if she had complications, it seemed like a very gruesome process that she said, you know, that it is depicted in a very, you know, dramatic and a graphic fashion. I've read anecdotes from other women that share similar stories to what Abby's story was. Uh, it's important because RU486 abortions are growing all the time. The, the, the percentage of abortions that they represent constantly goes up. They're for, for multiple reasons, they're, they're much easier for a clinic to perform early on. Uh, they require much less investment. You can do more than, there. for example, there was an article about California doctors that were coming into Texas to perform abortions. And over a two-day period, they were making sure that these abortions were performed. Now, the overwhelming majority, according to those abortionists that are going into Texas from California and doing abortions, are RU46 abortions. They have to be there and that under new laws in Texas to give those pills to those women. And so they come in and they spend two days giving the first pill to women and then telling them to go home and take the second. Uh, the way that RU486 works as a drug cycle is that you take the first pill and that that is actually the one that will end the life of your child. And then you take the second pill the next day and that will cause you to contract and evacuate the contents of the, your, your dead child and the other material that's in there, plus all the things that are in there. Um, and you do that at home or in a hotel or wherever you are. Uh, I've read from, there must be something to this being normalized to some degree. Maybe I'm not saying it's a universal experience that it's just this awful, but it must be at least happened enough that I've read from Planned Parenthood organizations, literature that they give to people or, or heard speakers give warnings that should this go wrong or should you be in pain or should something happen, Stay on the toilet. If you're afraid to look in the contents of the toilet as it's evacuated out of you, as, it, as, as you pass it out of you, um, call us and we will come to your hotel room and we will take care of it and remove all those things so that you don't have to see it and help you to deal with it. So, and I said, I've read multiple anecdotes from different women had similar experiences to what happened with Abby during all of this. So it, it's, the RU486 is not 
universally this gentle process where you just take a pill and you're not pregnant any longer. Uh, the contractions are caused by the second dose and those contractions have to be strong enough to evacuate the contents now of your uterus, which will include whatever stage of development, the, the dead embryo that uh, was killed by the first pill that you took the day before. Uh, and, and so those contractions, obviously, you know, is, is my, I remember when my wife was giving birth to our children, uh, uterine contractions aren't comfortable, right? They're not something that people enjoy. They're not usually understood as gentle. Uh, and so, and contractions of that nature are just not. So the movie is showing Abby's story, but it's a story that I've read and heard from multiple other people as well. And this method, this manner of abortion constantly grows such that I've actually heard people who, who monitor the statistics of the number of abortions that are performed in the United States every year, that it's really difficult to get a, a firm number any longer or to trust the numbers that you're seeing because RU486 abortions are much harder to track than surgical abortions are. Uh, there was an e it was easier because we were, they were required to do certain things. And that with RU-486, there's more room for error. There's more room for hiding things, or there's more room for an inability to get confident in the numbers the way that we probably used to be. Uh, and so that I think that's, I think that that was the most disturbing scene in the movie by far. Uh, I understand from hearing from people, uh, from the MPAA's reasoning as for why they gave it an R rating, that that scene was central to the R rating. Uh, and as much as the the first scene is difficult to watch, I thought the combination of the what she's going through and watching a woman go through something like that and experiencing that alone uh, was 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 horrifying. And especially for somebody who's watching it, knowing that this has happened to women all over this country for years, uh, and under the illusion that this is an easy way to abort your child. But I think people on the pro-choice would say the good thing about RU486 is it's just like having a miscarriage. So what's the big deal? I mean, people have miscarriages all the time at their homes. They have to do the same thing. They have to sit on the toilet. And, you know, unless it's at a later stage, they usually don't have a procedure. So how would you answer those people who are kind of on the fence specifically about RU486? Because they'll say it's so much simpler. It's not this big process. Uh, I, I think that anytime, uh, if someone were to try to make RU-46 less traumatic by saying it's like a miscarriage, as if miscarriages themselves weren't horrifyingly traumatic, uh, then I, I think that they, they are demonstrating themselves that they're, they're sort of missing the point of, of pregnancy and reproduction and relationships that mothers have to their children. I, 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 and I don't think that miscarriage would be, although miscarriages naturally happen, uh, they are a privation of the pregnancy process, correct? I mean, we don't want miscarriages to happen, although they naturally do. Uh, they're not a good thing that happens. Uh, and so trying to emulate them in some way or another. And there is still the responsibility of the medical professional to verify that all of the what was the life that was growing inside of the mother has left her uterus because if anything doesn't get evacuated, then she runs the risk of getting a septic infection and getting sick as a result of it. And so it doesn't really sidestep the medical responsibilities, except insofar as that they don't actually have to be the direct agent of death in the sense of by using an instrument to kill the child or chemically killing it. Uh, and so... I'm not sure why this is better, I guess is what I'm saying. It, it's fraught with complication. And here's the thing that here's, here's what I have heard from women who have been through it. There is an alienating nature to women that are sometimes feel pressured to go through abortion anyway. There, there, a, a, a woman in Illinois that I have worked with several times said, you know, when she got pregnant and her boyfriend looked at her and said, you know, I'll do whatever you want that that wasn't an empowering moment. She felt like he was abdicating any responsibility to reason through this or to at all. And he was throwing all of it on top of her. And so there's already this, and I remember folks in the family years ago gathered statistics that said that something around the nature of half abortions in the United States uh, and some way or another involved pressure from a male in the life on the woman, whether a father, a boyfriend, husband, whoever, uh, to go through this procedure. And so there's already an alienating aspect to it. And for women who have been through this, that alienation, that sense of going through it alone is multiplied even more when they're given pills and told to go home and go through this alone. And I think that that was a that's why I think that scene in the movie was very powerful and very bravely done is because, you know, you, you do have her narration at that point 
where she says that, you know, she thought this was how she was going to die. And she was just praying, you know, that her mother wouldn't be the one that finds her. Uh, that That is completely in line with stories that I've heard from other women who say, look, I was left alone to deal with this thing. And I was afraid. And you don't know how far this pain is supposed to go. And you don't know what normal pain is. And you don't know what a normal are you 486 abortion is like, and and that's terrifying, and and so it it further isolates somebody who may already have been f- the sense of isolation that has driven her to this decision in the first place, and so I think that there's several things that are that are awful about it. Not not the least of which is that to just constantly look for an easier way to kill other human life is a troubling goal in and of itself, right? If we could just find a way to do this easier, less complicated, less messy. Uh, it will be less morally abhorrent. What that doesn't hold true. What the moral nature of abortion depends on what the unborn are, not how efficiently and how easily we can destroy their lives. Well, one of the things that is pointed out in the film is that Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood is there to help women, you know, with reproductive their reproductive rights in terms of making access to birth control available, so that you know, abortion is a last resort. And for anyone who's been around for a while, will remember back in the 90s, President Bill Clinton, one of his famous quotes was that he wants abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And it's I think it's something to that effect is mentioned in this film. And so, you know, Abby at the time, her parents uh, are Christians in this film, and they're very uh, troubled by the fact that she works for Planned Parenthood, and she's trying to defend this to her mom. And she said, you know, we're there to do all these other kinds of screenings, so we only have one day for abortions, and so that's the day, Saturday, it's like the day that they get picketed, because that's the day that they're going to have uh, just the whole entire day devoted to abortions. Now, is that still typical of how a Planned Parenthood clinic operates where they have one day where they're doing abortions and you know how is is that true all these years later almost 30 years later is abortion safe legal and rare well maybe 25 years later um it's well rare i guess depends on how you want to discuss rare and even why you would want I mean, it's to legal yeah, I, it's can, legal. I guess you could say yeah. legal. And, and safe again safe presupposes the unborn aren't human the same way that you and i are could, could you make abortions more and more safe for the women who are seeking abortions, certainly you could. Uh, but every abortion, by its very definition, is successfully attained, is 100% lethal to the unborn life inside of it. Uh, and so the very idea of a safe abortion only presupposes either that the unborn are not human in the same way that you and I are, or that their humanity is in some way up for grabs in a way that it makes it okay or that we're justified in killing them. There's no such thing as a safe abortion for human life if the unborn have the same value that you and I do. And obviously organizations like mine try to argue very convincingly that they do. As far as far as the practice, I mentioned earlier that uh, that those doctors come in from California. There's a reason why abortion happens all on one day, or even over now multiple days uh, in these facilities. It's because it would be incredibly expensive to have an abortionist on staff and in the place all of the time for a Planned Parenthood to operate. I mean, there are in in my area over here, there was for years an abortionist that worked and who had his own clinic and he operated and he was the only one in the area. So he was open and doing things all the time. But for a Planned Parenthood clinic, the cost or expense of constantly having a medical professional performing abortions would be cost prohibitive. And so they bring them in for short windows and they're contracted out and they come in from other places, depending on where you are. The number of doctors that want or are willing to perform abortions is constantly going down. Uh, it's just something that medical professionals just aren't interested in getting involved with. Not always because of moral reasons, it's just because there's other ways to make money that won't get them in the middle of this. And But there are moral reasons as well. Uh, and so there is a need uh, for abortion clinics all over the country to draw them in from different places. And so you'll have abortionists that will go from state to state. They will, they will do this day in this state at this particular clinic, and then they'll go to another state and they'll be on that day at that clinic. Uh, performing abortions there. And so those are the, the reasons why that exists the way that it does. I mean, number one, it's cost prohibitive. And number two, there just aren't that many doctors that want to do this. Uh, not, and, and so they, they have to have those days that are intensely about it. And, and that's why you have these, these horrifying, when I talk, for me, when I talk to sidewalk counselors and they'll report online, some of them are my friends, they'll have these days where they go and they're praying in front of 
abortion clinics and, and trying to offer help, to say, much like you saw at the fence that was done by the 40 Days for Life people uh, at the fence with Sean Carney and his wife in the movie. They're doing this and trying to offer help and trying to offer opportunities and resources, and they will report. It's just, look, you go these days, and it's just woman after woman after woman after woman going into these clinics uh, because that's the day. That's the day the doctor's in. That's the day that it's happening, and that's the day everything is going on as far as both the prayers, the, uh, the objections, the protest, and the abortions. It seems to me that abortion doctors will have to travel more because – so many clinics actually have closed, specifically in the state of Texas. This issue has been brought up in the media a bunch that it's getting very hard to find be, to be able to get an abortion in the state of Texas because of the laws that have caused them or various reasons why the clinics have closed. And so some of the, at least the woman that was performing abortions in the reversing row um, documentary. She felt very strongly about it. And she did go from state to state because of this very reason, seeing so many abortion clinics close. Now, this film is very Christian. And on its website, it even has a downloadable excerpt of a devotional that they did around the film's theme. And so, you know, and then as I've read different mainstream media sources of film reviews for Unplanned that were, I would say, bordering on snarky, if not snarky itself, um, you know, even they said this, this film is preaching to the choir. There is no way it's going to change anyone's mind. It just comes across as heavy handed. So do you think this film will have the ability to work to change people's mind on the issue? Because it seems to me, at least the people I know on both sides, they're very set and they're very fervent. And, you know, it's just like one way or the other. And even friends that are pro-choice, they're like, I don't care if there's other reasons. I'm just not going to believe them, period. Yeah. yeah. And, and you, there are people, obviously someone like me who works in this and all of my friends and the people that we end up dialoguing and arguing with on the other side that represent the pro-choice or abortion rights side, uh, who are just entrenched in their view and are fighting for all that, you know, I, I switched. I mean, I was, when I was younger and I was in college, I was pro-choice and I switched over to the pro-life side and never envisioned this being my life when I was younger. Uh, I do think it has the ability to have an impact anecdotally, just from what I've seen online and also from conversations with people that I've had. Uh, I sought out particularly two people that I knew that went to one of the screenings that I attended afterwards to have a conversation with them. And I knew that they were not only not animated on the issue of abortion, but were really on the fence. I mean, they were people that from conversations I'd had with them in the past, that they would have probably been, if they would have called themselves that, well, I'm personally pro-life, but I think other people should be able to make the decisions that they want to make and and to do anything legally is wrong. Uh, And it did impact them. It did change the way that they understood the issue. Uh, most people in the United States, the overwhelming majority of the people in the United States, don't really know what abortion laws were, probably probably prior to January when all of this started to unfold, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so it's odd. I, I mean, I've, I've talked about this all over the country, and I'm always surprised the kind of things that can change somebody's mind. Uh, sometimes it can be just answering particular questions for them that they've never thought of before. Uh, consider the unborn as fully human and consider how we would treat other human beings that we accepted uncontroversially as human. They start to think of those things. And then sometimes immediately they say, oh my goodness, I've never thought of this that way. I've completely changed my mind. Uh, I've seen and been in front of people that have seen some sort of graphic representation or image representation of abortion. Even the animated videos that Dr. Levitana, who or Levitino, who I mentioned earlier, who was in the movie, uh, he does like animated versions showing what an abortion looks like and how it's practiced from a medical standpoint. I've seen people watch those and immediately change their mind. I've seen people change their minds talking to women who share their stories. And then I've seen somebody who knows all of these things and is deeply entrenched in their pro-choice view and is unmoved completely and entirely, uh, even when they're forced to accept co- uh, the consequences of a viewpoint of human life that is uh, only valuable by virtue of things like conscious awareness and things, they'll bite the bullet and say, okay, well, I'll agree that it's okay to kill a newborn because it has no value. And so it's really hard to predict what will change people's minds. Uh, so even though I think to the to some degree that this will play better, you're right, uh, with people who are already sympathetically Christian or pro-life and on that side, I do think also that there's enough information in there that it can, it can have an effect or an impact on people 
who are the overwhelming majority of people who are those that they just, this is not their, this issue is not their life. They're not sitting around every day worried about this. They're living their lives. They're doing their thing. And, and American people have shown a tremendous capacity to ignore abortion. <laughs> They've shown a tremendous capacity to not take this thing on all of the time. Uh, and so when they're confronted with something like this, it will, it does have the opportunity to have an impact. And I do think that even though the, those criticisms from the other side uh, from their position are warranted in the sense that it is not made for everyone uh, in the sense that it's not going to please the hardcore pro-choice advocate. I think it has the opportunity to take a lot of people who haven't really thought about this issue at all and to give it legs in their life. Even one pro-choice person that I read said, I saw this movie and I wavered and I wanted to go home and learn more. And for me, I believe information is on our side. So learning more is a good thing. Go home, study, find out about it. If it's having that impact on somebody who went into it disagreeing with it, then it can have an impact. Yes, I absolutely, absolutely believe it can. I definitely think after I saw that, just because it, the abortion, like I said in the documentary, the, the pro-choice documentary that I watched didn't show the graphic nature of it. I thought, are they that graphic? Not necessarily the RU46, but you know the vacuum one. So I... I went, you're right. I went online to look it up. I mean, does this happen? And, you know, that's kind of a common, you were just mentioning people who are wavering. I think one of the most common, I guess, ethical views towards this would be the person who said, you know, I believe, you know, I can't, you know, I have to know before my God, so I can't have this on somebody else. So therefore, you know, even if I think it's wrong, I can't impose what I think is wrong on other people. I really have to give women the opportunity to make their own choices about their bodies. And I know your state's in the news a lot lately because of this fetal heartbeat bill, which people are saying is completely draconian. I mean, it's saying that abortion should take place even after you can hear the fetal heartbeat, which is at a very uh, young, much of a, uh, what, six weeks, as opposed to in this movie, it seemed like most of the abortions were being done at maybe 12 weeks yes. or something like that. Yeah. And it's reliably heard about eight weeks from my, when I talk to OBGYNs, they, they, they will withhold trying to find the fetal heartbeat in offices at the six week mark oftentimes because they say it's unreliable to find it at six weeks. Uh, you can reliably find it at eight and there's no reason to stress a mother out if they look for it at six and don't find it and then have her wait two weeks for the next one. Uh, so it's interesting, the idea of draconian laws. I mean, it, it, it's the idea. I've heard this. Alyssa Milano very famously was tweeting about these kind of, this, the, she called it the forced pregnancy law. Um, if you're, that's what we would say you're making, people are often making the mistake of, of putting this into the wrong category of kind of argument. This, that that what, viewpoint that what you're talking about puts this in the category of a preference statement, right? Uh, I particularly believe or prefer to believe that the unborn are human, but you may prefer to believe that they're not. Who am I to tell you what you can or can't do with your own body? The problem is that objectively speaking, the unborn are something. And our, our moral responsibility is to do our best to answer the question, what is the unborn? If we can answer that question, if, if even if it's that it's more plausible than not, that the unborn are fully human and do the same basic duty and respect that all other human beings are, not the least of which is just to not kill them, uh, then the idea of laws that restrict our behavior to them is not only not draconian, but it's very natural to our culture, right? Uh, you know, I, I just spoke in front of a school last week, and it was funny when, when somebody stood up and was asking me about these kind of laws and restricting access to abortion, because you'll never end abortion. I said, well, we'll never end murder, but do we have laws against murder? Yes. Do murder, does, murder, does murder happen? Yes. Do we have laws against rape? Yes. Does rape happen? Yes. The, the, the function of law is to limit evil. It's not to eliminate it, because that's impossible possible, but to limit the impact on evil and our culture. Uh, and the law is draconian. If the highest ideal or expression of your freedom is the ability to have sex without consequences and to get pregnant and never have to deal with that, or to be able to deal with it in a way through the practice of abortion, which would be if the unborn are fully human, contracting a third party to kill your offspring. Uh, and, and so it depends on how you define abortion and how you answer the question, what is the unborn? The people of Georgia largely believe that the unborn have value and they want laws that reflect that within the state, within the borders of their state. And, and that's not draconian. That's a, a group of people collectively assembling to say, this is what we believe that the law ought to be. Will it require that the people change the way they behave? Sure. But this isn't new. I mean, and when William Wilberforce and his group were fighting for abolition in England, uh, Charles James Fox was at, was, was in an argument who was an abolitionist, 
was told, look, if we get rid of slavery, then the whole colony experiment in the United States fails, and that threatens the economics of Great Britain. His response wasn't, oh, well, then we have to have slavery. His response was that if our way of life and if the colonial experiment is is dependent upon this evil, then let the colonial experiment fail and let us change our way of life. And so we have to answer that question, what is the unborn? We can't abdicate our responsibility for it because we like the lifestyle that we can lead if we just determine prior to that that the unborn aren't fully human. And when we, re when we restrain from telling other people that they can't do a horrible thing because we don't want to tell them what they can or can't do, it's only because we don't see abortion in the same category as those moral offenses that we would uncontroversially accept as wrong, like murder, rape, or child abuse. We see it as something more like a preference statement. I prefer apples over bananas. I prefer chocolate over vanilla ice cream. I prefer Coke to Pepsi. And so I'll do what I want to do. You do what you want to do. But that's not the kind of conversation that abortion is. The, the right or wrong of it is grounded on how we objectively answer to the best of our ability, what is the unborn? And that exists. The answer to that exists external to all of us. It is not in any way uh, tied to our psychological state towards the unborn. Well, you've seen this movie twice. And I know that you think that the producers and those that made this movie, maybe even the actors, um, we're brave to do this. Yes. So why do you characterize this movie as brave? I know some people have said for the main actress that plays Abby Johnson that, you know, she's a working actress. So if she's in this movie, that's going to be, you know, very dampening on her career. She might not get other jobs. Yeah. And I, I do think also on a side note, as somebody who, you know, I've, 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 I think in this conversation have said things that are not exactly hugely impressed with certain aspects of this movie. I liked Ashley Bratcher in this movie, the actress who plays her. I thought, and I think Owen Gleiberman at Variety, even as he's ripping the movie, he, he says she's an appealing actress. And I do think she carries the weight of the movie very well. Um, I think it was brave because, as I mentioned earlier, our culture has shown an, an amazing capacity to ignore abortion. Uh, anytime that things are thrown in front of them, it's, it's the, the ability to act as if it's not happening or it's not important, or it doesn't touch every aspect of our life, it's easy to not show up. I put, I put a high level of appreciation on people to just show up and have this conversation, pro-life and pro-choice the same. If you show up and want to take me on when I'm in a Q&A, I have respect for you. I have respect for you because you showed up and you were willing to have this conversation. And these guys showed up. You know, it would have been easy not to make this movie. And they had to fight to make this movie. And they they changed the name of it because they didn't really want people knowing with the movie that they were making. And they kept the R rating without fighting for it because they said we would rather have the R rating and show abortion. You know, it's amazing to me that Gosnell, a movie about Kermit Gosnell, and I don't want to undermine that movie, but that one of the the key criticisms of that was that Gosnell was the equivalent of a serial killer operating under the title of an abortionist and was doing grisly and awful things, unimaginable things in that clinic with human bodies. And the movie completely punted on showing any of that. It did everything. It did not do it because it, it was more, it was more determined to get a PG 13 than it was to show the truth about what happened with Kermit Gosnell. In this particular case, they showed about abortion, what they wanted to show as ugly as it was. And when they were given an R rating, they said, we'll take it. We would rather have the R rating than fight with you or to, to compromise what we intend to show on this particular issue. Do I think it was a perfectly executed film? No. Do I think it was bold and brave and, and to take this on in a time when the culture is so charged and anger is, so, is, is just out of control from the other side on a lot of these things? We have a, a, a young woman that I work, have worked and seen working in the pro-life is posting things that is being left to her all the time. And, and there's just ghastly, horrifying, hate-filled messages that she's receiving all of the time for being a pro-life advocate online. Uh, and so to step into this fight right now at this time with this movie and to do it with what I believe to be uh, genuine character and determination to tell the story the way that you want to tell it in spite of anything or shortfalls that might come as far as getting the R rating, I think is bold. I think it's brave. And every one of those actors was warned, you may never work again if you take this role. Uh, and, and, every, and I heard them say that from their own mouths. And every one of them said, we're in. We're on board for this. We'll do it, even if it means the end of our career. So I don't think it's going to play out that way. But I do think that 
at the end of the day, when you're willing to show up and take the heat and take the attack and take the salt that comes for getting involved with this issue, you have my respect personally. And, and I appreciate the fact that you just showed up because showing up on this issue, it does take guts when the other side is doing everything they can oftentimes to make you feel bad about talking about this in multiple different ways. Well, I'd like to end on a much lighter note. So I want to ask Jay some fun rapid fire questions. So you live in Georgia, banana pudding or pecan pie? Oh, banana pudding. Love banana pudding. I love it. Oh, man, I do not like banana pudding. Oh, man. But I did eat a really good banana pudding recently in Atlanta, and I was surprised that I liked it. It was kind of a riff on banana pudding. Well, what's one of your most visited websites? Oh, uh, you know what? I, I, feel, I feel I was just telling my wife this morning that I have to be careful about going to YouTube because I will fall into a key and peel hole. So I would say when I'm not working, unfortunately, lately, what I do is I watch a lot of key and peel skits on YouTube. Uh, and it can, it, it's embarrassing how long I can watch those if my kids are in bed and my wife is sleeping on the couch, uh, because I just absolutely adore them as far as those videos. I think they're so funny and so on point with so much of what they do. And would you rather go camping or stay in a hotel? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, the right hotel, I would rather stay in a hotel. Uh, I, you know, traveling a lot, you find out that almost all hotel rooms are exactly the same, no matter how much they're charging you for them. Uh, you know, there's little differences, but those little differences when you're on the road all the time don't amount to much. But when you go to a really nice hotel, for example, for our 20th anniversary, my wife and I took our family and we just splurged and we went to the Grand Floridian at Disney World. And man, staying in a resort like that is just like heaven. You know, I, I just loved it. I didn't even want to go to the parks. I just wanted to be at the resort and, and enjoy the amenities there. So I would say probably the right hotel than a hotel every day of the week. Washing dishes or doing laundry? Uh, I love laundry. I love doing laundry. I cannot explain to you why. I love the whole process of it. Maybe it's just because there's, there's so few things in this world where you start a task and finish them. And a laundry is something you can start and finish if you do it right in a fairly short amount of time. But in this household, in my house, more than any other person in it, I enjoy doing laundry. I, on days off, I would just be happy just doing laundry and folding it and putting it up and, and just chilling out. So, And I, I don't like doing dishes. I hate dishes. Wow, that's very unique. I don't know how many guys out there would love doing laundry. <laughs> so we've talked about the unborn as children. And so I know that you are a parent and you have kids. So how many kids do you have? And what's one of the biggest blessings for you about being a parent? I have three kids, a 16-year-old son, a 14-year-old daughter, and a 10-year-old daughter. Um, and I think that the thing that my kids do for me is that uh, it's my nature to get deeply into whatever subject that I'm studying. And this subject matter is not always fun, obviously, to study, rarely fun to study. Uh, and so what my family does for me is they ground me in a world of joy. Right. I mean, what's the point of fighting for the dignity and value of all human life if life itself doesn't have some intrinsic beauty to it? If God didn't give us good things to enjoy, and if that, if even if you're not there, the possibility of enjoying that is there. And my kids can interrupt even the darkest moment with complete and total joy from any direction in any different way. If it's the pride in my son and the young man he's growing up in, all the way to my daughter going to work out with me, or my youngest daughter just walking up and pulling the computer off my lap and climbing into my lap one day and forcing me to just hug her for a second, they can call me out of my head and back into the world in a moment. Uh, and it's, it's just the greatest blessing of being a father for me is to enjoy watching my children be these little people uh, that just make my life better. Well, thanks, Jay, for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thank you. I had a great time. Today's guest is Jay Watts, who has written an online exclusive film review of the movie Unplanned, and it's in theaters now, and his review is available free online at our website, equip.org. We'd also like you to subscribe to the journal. A journal subscription is thirty-three fifty. And our content, including these online exclusive articles and interviews, are free at equip.org, which means it's subscriptions by print subscribers that provide the resources that are available to minister to literally millions of people worldwide who come to our website seeking answers on ethical questions like the issue of abortion. So please subscribe to the journal at equip.org. 
We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI, Christian Research Journal, Hank Hanegraaff, and the Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes and please rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast. Follow Hank off the grid, where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Mm-hmm.